Hi, welcome to the Camacho Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Camacho. The interview you are about to hear was conducted live and has been edited for your listening pleasure. To join a Lori Live interview or to participate in the Camacho Career Support Group, please find us on Facebook at the Camacho Careers Group page. For a list of upcoming events or to contact me directly, please visit lauricamacho.com. I'm Lori Camacho. I'm speaking with Sid Bassett, who is the former uh, European treasurer and international finance executive from ConocoPhillips. And how long did you hold that role? Seven years? Right? Uh, which one? The, the yeah, European that role I was there for probably, I was there for six years um, in London. Uh, I'd been there before, so we spent 10 years of our life there and had a, a wonderful stay in London. So. And then he just retired in 2019. So great. So are there particular KPIs? We've seen this uh, in 2008. We've seen the recession of the oil market pretty bad there. But how do you think this one's going to be different? Obviously, we've already seen things like um, they're starting to talk about putting tariffs on international oil being brought over, trying to keep it domestic. Do you think that's going to be some stuff to watch for? Do you think it's really going to possibly be something that Trump will be able to push through? Yeah, I think that's more rhetoric than anything else. So you've got to think about crude oil is not, nothing until it's a product. And so you've got to look around at the global refining capacity and where the refiners are receiving their supplies. And, you know, we have refineries here in the U.S., obviously. Um, I'm most familiar with the ones on the Gulf Coast where I worked for a number of years. We also have them on the East Coast and the West Coast. And some of those refineries take a certain slate of crude so some of that crude has to come from overseas. And so to the extent that there was uh, the type of crude that you needed that only could come from Africa or only come from um, South America, then, then, uh, you know, then that could be an issue because you're paying a tariff on oil coming in and that would just raise the price of oil unnecessarily, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think more likely, uh, uh, although there'll be a lot of talk around that, there'll be a push to stop the exports uh, from the U.S. externally. And that will probably be what you see first. And so those companies, especially on the Gulf Coast that are exporting now, likely will stop the exporting and keep all crude production in the U.S. within the U.S. But I think important to note is that I I think the tariffs, the incoming tariffs, uh, isn't likely to happen anytime soon. I don't think that's going to help the industry at all. I think the... um, thing we'll probably see first are the exports uh, being stopped and keeping the crude within the U.S. But overall, I think what you're hearing globally is that there's trying to be a balance created with the help of OPEC and others to, to lower supply. If you don't lower supply and demand continues to go down, then you're going to see um, a low price for a long period of time. And that's, I think, the real risk for the oil and gas industry in the U.S. is that you get, instead of uh, six months and then a, a rebound, you get a year or two, and that's when you start seeing uh, jobs being impacted. So how do you think, do you think that this will um, affect, obviously it's not going to affect the whole industry the same, so which companies do you think people should be looking towards to maybe lead us through this current crisis and um, which companies do you think 
or what type of companies do you think we're going to need to be a little bit more careful with or are going to take longer to recover from this slowdown? Okay, so I won't name names. That would uh, be a little unprofessional. I'm not sure my, my prior peers would appreciate that. But I will say that uh, companies who have a strong balance sheet uh, will last, you know, survive the longest, and they'll also be the last to start announcing the layoffs that you will likely see in the coming months. Uh, so you're talking, you know, the large have stability. They also have a great diversity of cash flow within the system. And so the larger the company, the more likely they're going to be around for longer. The smaller companies, those that rely on a given field or those that rely on a different, a, a, a certain geography and a certain product are likely to be hurt uh, the most because the smaller you are, now there's less overhead, but the problem is the smaller you are, you've kind of sized your company around a certain oil price. And our oil price is not going to be $20, which is where it is today. So they're going to have problems finding cash uh, to pay all their bills. And that, those are the ones that are going to get hurt first. The larger companies, again, with a great diversity of, of supply of product, they will be around longer and they don't tend to act quickly. Uh, that, that's the other thing that's important to note is that the majors, and I will include my former company of Conoco Phillips, they don't act very quickly in the sense of starting to cut costs. Now, where there are costs that they'll, they'll uh, probably act on quickly is in the ranks of the contractors, because uh, there's quite mm -hmm. a significant workforce of contractors in these companies. So I apologize if you're a contractor, you're probably one of those that they would look to let go of first before uh, they're full-time employees. Great. Can you share then also, so we're talking about major versus small, um, but then also what about within the industry? You have your upstream, your downstream, your drilling. Obviously right now we have a surplus of crude is what they're saying, right? So that's going to affect the people who are in the uh, drilling and the exploration quite a bit. But other things that coming from your background in finance, what are some things that people can be looking for within the companies? Maybe even, uh, I mean, obviously there's stocks, but other uh, acquisitions or mergers or things that the companies are doing financially that are going to impact how they're going to be able to withstand the shock of COVID. Yeah, let me, those are two questions there, uh, almost three. Let me first address the first question, which was the, the difference between upstream companies and downstream and the midstream companies and midstream companies being those that tend to deliver the crude to the, uh, the refineries or the processing facilities, and they're more lo the, the, the logistics. And so oftentimes those companies have large contracts in place already, and so their margin is secure for – a longer period of time. The downstream companies, what they're doing is they're buying very cheap crude at this point because that's the input of their refineries and then the output is gonna be their gas and diesel and other products. And so again, they work on a margin. And so the margin tends to get squeezed as prices go up and down quickly. And so I think if prices come down, you know, they did come, come down there very quickly. If they, if they rise again slowly, then most of those companies can adapt pretty well to that changing environment. Um, and, and I think that the downstreamers will be in a, in a pretty good place. 
the the problem with upstream especially if they're solely an upstream company and not an upstream and downstream or an integrated company the issue there is um that they truly are a um a a taker of price of crude and so if their cost of supply their overall supply of crude is $50 and crude oil price is $20, then they're going to hit hemorrhage cash for a long period of time. And that's going to be hard for them to survive long-term. Again, the larger companies will survive for longer. Smaller companies will suffer faster in that sense. So if you're looking at the types of companies, um, obviously um, I think that those that have staying power are your majors and they also <laughs> tend to have a more integrated feature to them because of debt downstream and midstream. But I would say that um, if you if you want to go specifically into upstream and decide which companies are going to survive, I'd go to their balance sheets. And I don't want to get into great detail on this, yeah. but you can tell the companies that have taken on a lot of debt, taken on acquisitions that perhaps were ill-timed in the market, and also those that have a dividend, which is quite substantial against their cash flows. So uh, th those are the companies you want to watch. If the dividend is outsized, the cash flows they expect, that's going to be a problem. If they, uh, if they raised a lot of debt for acquisitions over the course of the past few years, that's going to be a problem. On the other hand, if companies have tightened up their balance sheets and uh, worked hard in getting their debt down that they all took on in 2008, mm -hmm. um, then those are the companies that will survive the longest and, and uh, will survive the best of that crew. So um, for the people on the call who are not, who are oil and gas professionals, not finance professionals, where do you recommend that they go to see this? I mean, you can go to Google Finance, right? And you can look at reports, but do you have any places that you recommend that have the best kind of overall snapshot or that can help them to discern which companies are, are uh, you know, doing the best in their dividends and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I say Yahoo Finance is probably your best free source. You can pay for sources of information. I don't think you're going to want to do that. I mean, you could go. There are certain sources through Bloomberg, which are very helpful that I have found. And you can pay for, for sources as well. Um, but generally, unless you are pretty attuned to the industry, it may be a waste of your money. Uh, what I would do is is go out and find any free re research you can find. So the, the sell side does a lot of research um, and they do it from a third party perspective. And so if you can get access to any sell side research, that would be great. Uh, talk to your financial advisor and they likely can get that for you if you want it. That's great. So because things are going to be a little bit shaky for a while. Do you see any new emerging companies or industry trends that you think are going to come out of this downturn and really kind of get momentum from the current uh, status of oil being compromised and what's going on with the trading and things like that? Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's hard to predict where companies are going to go, but I can tell you what happened in 2008. So 2008, what you found is most companies tried to dispose of a lot of their assets that weren't core. And as they, as they dispose of those assets, they sold them into the market. And they also laid off a number of engineers, finance professionals, uh, HR professionals, and others along the way. And so those, those individuals tended to group up and go buy the assets that are being sold by the larger companies. 
And I had a number of my professional friends and colleagues uh, that did exactly that. So if you're looking at emerging companies, what you're going to find is there'll be large uh, set, sets of assets, depending on where they're at, that will be sold over the course of the next 12 months. And uh, then you just need to watch the money. And the um, if you get some VC money that will come in and they decide they want to have invest in those assets, the smaller assets, again, then the, the job opportunities are going to come from those smaller companies that are going to a lot of them will be coming from the majors, right? They're, they're going to either decide of their own accord to leave or they will be invited to leave and they're not re- ready to leave. So they'll be the ones that will be the easy tar- targets for those, uh, uh, you know, the money that will want to come back into the industry when they start to recover. And that's usually start starting up a smaller company and building from a base. And we saw that, we saw that a lot in 2009 and 2010. So my prediction would be that's what you're going to see in 2021 and 22. So a lot of just smaller market, smaller company, smaller like consulting companies growing up, um, taking advantage of those assets that are being let off and things like that. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say they're consulting companies. I would yeah. say that they're they're operating companies. They they're getting a hold of the venture capitalist money who want to invest in the oil and gas space mm-hmm. uh, in a smaller way than the billions of dollars, so in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and they'll go and acquire talent to create those companies to build those companies. And I would say that twenty five percent of the industry in two thousand eight left and did uh, exactly that. Um, so it's not so much consulting, but rather start starting up a smaller company. If you look at the small independents now, a lot of those companies started in that exact same way back in their early nineties. Okay. For somebody who is looking, you know, obviously to stay in the oil and gas market, would you, how would you advise if they're looking to, for a job, would you advise them to work? How many of those companies that were created are still in operation today? I guess is what I'm saying. Well, so that that's a that's a tough question. Um, t- the way the industry would usually play out in a situation like this is that you would see a lot of assets being sold. You'd see a lot of consolidation. Mm-hmm. So smaller companies joining up with smaller companies and then creating a bit larger companies that they can survive and weather the storm. So that's what you should expect to see. As far as employees are concerned, um, you you know the first thing I would say obviously is. Uh, uh, don't get caught up in the rumoring of today and, and uh, keep your head down and do a great job where you're at. I've been, I've been around a lot of re- reorganizations um, and I've worked with a lot of companies who have been through reorganizations. And what I've found consistent across the board um, is that there are those people that you just need in your business. So you will keep those people. They generally are those that get the higher ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you have poor performance ratings, um, that typically puts you in a category of being, um, open to leaving the company, I'll just say. Um, but that's not, you know, it, it, it's not always the case, but I would say that most of the time it's just the performance of the day that will carry you to keep you in your role. If you're not in the business and you want to get in the business, I would look for the smaller companies who are starting up and then apply your skill set. Be visible on LinkedIn. Be, be visible on the platforms that Lori will use because she's very good at that. Um, so that when people are trying to find talent, 
they, they go there, they'll find you, and that's where you'll start to make a match uh, between yourself and those, those companies. Great. So the, these companies are coming in, they're going to be, I, they're hoping, I'm, I'm guessing, is to eventually be acquired, these smaller um, venture you know, capital projects to hopefully at one point be acquired. So what about those who then take the skills and pull them together that are being let go and create consulting companies? Did you see some of that in 2008? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because um, it, a lot of the companies into, you know, whatever you call it, downsize, right size, re, um, re- rethink themselves. And oftentimes they will turn to consultants to do that. And so I, I'm not downplaying the idea that consultant consultants will be of real use in the coming years mm-hmm. uh, because that they will um, because inevitably um, there's change at the top. And when there's change at the top, they tend to want to go get advice and oftentimes they'll go to outside consulting firms to get that advice. And so I, I wouldn't discount the value of consultants. Um, the issue tends to be that uh, for the next six months to a year, um, all those discretionary costs, including consultants, get cut in the budget. And so they start to pull back on benchmarking. They start to pull back on on costs that they would otherwise want to have for the shorter term. And then sort of by short term, I'm talking maybe six months to a year. I'm going to assume the market's going to start to rebound after a year, you know, depending on the, the, the progress of the, of the, of, of CB19. I think uh-huh. that uh, when that happens, you're going to see a slow rise and recovery. And at that point, you could see consultant work being more interesting. But, but again, I think these new companies buying up the assets of the larger companies will be the bigger winner when it comes to job creation. Okay, great. So some questions coming in are, what impact would the cancellation of OTC have on the oil and gas industry? Um, it's a good question. I mean, OTC is a great event. It's one which is um, highly attended and it helps small companies become more known into the uh, space because every year there's a new group of service co- companies that come in and, and uh, can show off mostly their technology, which is a big selling point at OTC. Um, it will be a disappointment for a lot of people, I can assure you, especially those uh, smaller companies who are trying to get their names in front of the larger ones. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know that it will have um, a major impact. I mean, I'm, I'm still getting over the idea that there's not going to be a, a Wimbledon this year. Um, you know, it won't be an impact on me, but it will be a huge impact on those people who are right there in the front lines to play and well, compete. Well, the Olympics and so, too. And the Olympics as well. Yeah. Those who were primed to compete at that time in their life are now going to have to decide, you know, if they're going to be that, you know, in that shape a year from now, because they were hoping to be done after this year or, or, but they're their best ever. So it's easy for me to say, I mean, OTC is something we attend every single year. I've been part of a large company for a long time. So I wouldn't say for the larger companies, it's a big impact, but for that smaller company trying to get their name in front of the larger companies, then I think that would be a big miss. All right, some other questions coming in. For EMP companies, would the offshore upstream investments be drastically impacted? Oh, absolutely. Offshore investments have already been impacted. Mm-hmm. The problem with offshore investments is that they're very long-term investments. The exact opposite of that is shale production, for example, which is a very short-term, quick production uh, hit, so you can invest a lot right up front. 
and you can get the production in a very short period of time. Whereas offshore, your planning is anywhere from five to seven years. And then the risk factor is, um, you know, depending on how successful you are, you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars before you even know if you're going to be successful. And so companies aren't as willing to commit to deep water offshore. I will say that um, those companies that are already doing offshore work, that's their core business, they won't change and that they'll continue to uh, to explore around their own assets. So I don't think that will change much. But I think new entrants into the field are unlikely to uh, occur in a big way. Great. Also going back to our discussion about the assets being let go and then other people coming in and picking them up, there was a question, where do you find the assets for sale? Yeah, so most major companies all use banks to to market their assets. I don't know of a single one that doesn't. Um, they have really great BD people, but the business development, um, acquisition development people that work in-house, but they almost always get an external uh, bank to, to run the process. So the way you find those assets generally are those that are, are, are going out. If, you're, if you can get close to the in, investment bankers, um, then they will know everything that's on the market because they'll all be asked to pitch for a deal and they speak they share information freely, notwithstanding the confidentiality agreements that they sign. <laughs> Sorry, I've offended at least half the crowd out there. <laughs> so let's switch gears now. We're going to talk about hiring during the downturns. We've talked a little bit about it. We've been talking about the market and the finance. If you have more questions about the financial market with oil and gas, please ask them over on the side. But in interest of time, we're going to move on and uh, talk a little bit about the strategies. Because one of the things that Sid did before he left ConocoPhillips is he was very involved in some of the hiring practices there. And so we want to talk with him about that. So first of all, can you just explain to us when it comes to an economic downturn like in 2008, what is the hiring layoff process within a major oil and gas company? Kind of what strategies are activated and what are the, you know, the different kind of, uh, I'm thinking locks like a ship that get released, you know, as the downturn gets worse and worse. Yeah. So, um, first let me talk about just the, the types of employees that tend to lose their job first and then the process, um, and how that all happens. Um, and I, I think this is very, very common amongst the large, uh, the mid cap to majors. Uh, if you're looking at size of a company, the smaller you get, the smaller you get, the quicker that they let go of people. I mean, I'll just to be honest with you. Um, you could show up tomorrow and not have a job if you're in a very small company of five or 10 or 20 people. That just happens all the time. Uh, when you get up into the more sizable companies, your, your large EMP companies, uh, your large refiners, your large um, midstream companies, those companies tend not to react to, to the market quickly now that they're reacting is in the sense of trying to cut costs and things like that very quickly so i i don't want to say they're just sitting on their hands but they don't move toward let laying off people because they don't want to do that um without sort of having a little bit of visibility into the future and so they they tend it tends to take a little bit of time for that to happen right now they're all reworking their budgets that's what they're all doing right now um they're rerunning their uh their three plus nine their four plus eight uh, the, the, their budget, trying to figure out how they're going to survive the, the next quarter and how much cash flow shortages they have. So that's what they're all doing right now. Nobody's thinking about laying off people. Um, 
then what happens is, is they start saying, okay, we need to stop hiring. That's sort of the hiring freeze process that you um, and I had talked about before. And the reason why they do a hiring freeze process um, is because they don't want certain organizations laying off people and then certain others hiring people. So that looks bad. And, and CEOs, I don't know if you knew this or not, but they do not like to look bad. And what happens is the press will pick up on that. And so they tend to just send out a, a, a blanket statement saying, we're going to stop hiring. And if you want to hire anybody, you got to come back to me. So the top executive, she or he, whoever that is, they tend to have to approve those things. And that's, that uh, tends to slow down any external hiring. So then once they decide they're not hiring anymore, they let attrition take hold in hopes that maybe some people will decide to leave on their own. And I say that because um, they don't want to let go of people. That's not an easy thing for an organization to do. It sounds like it is when you, you read it in the press, but it's not what they want to do in-house. They want to keep their talent. They've, they've uh, spent and invested a lot of money on their talent. Um, and so what they'll do is if it's a large, if it's a large layoff, they know they have to do this. Of course, there's, there's state and federal laws that they have to give no, notice for that. So the first step you're going to do is they're going to put out a warn. I noticing that's workforce um, adjustment retraining. I think that's what it stands for. Uh, it's, a, it's a notification you put out to the press and you have to let them know uh, 60 days in advance. And then what you do is you set almost a date out there. So you'll say, we're, we're not going to lay anybody off until X date. Let's say it's August 1. Um, so you've got time then to start thinking about, you know, what kind of performer were you? What type of skill set do you have? And do you think that you're going to be a part of the organization come August 1? And then from that point forward, all the talent management teams tend to work together uh, they tend not to work in silos. I would hope to think that all the majors work that same way, in which case then what they do is they look at the different roles that are going to go away. They look at their talent and they say, okay, here we have excess talent. Can we place them in roles that we might still uh, re retain in the organization? And that's a, that's a very large process. I was involved in that from uh, the, where the last recession uh, from a global standpoint. And uh, we move people all over uh, the globe. It seems very odd to move people when you're going through layoffs. But when you lose some people, uh, you have to re replace them. Now, another thing that happens at time is typically when you're going to lay off, the, the, the number 500 is, is in my head. That's when you have to give a warn notice. But when you're laying out that many people, um, you tend to offer up a package of, of severance. And, and that, that's the point at where people who – uh, what, what the company should do is say, if you want to have severance, please let us know. Of course, now you're putting yourself out there, but if you do do that, then they will take that in consideration when they go through the layoffs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if that works for you, great. If it doesn't, then you just hope that there's others that do want to leave and, it, you know, retain some jobs that you would be competitive for. So, again, to summarize, you've got to give warning first. You'll know it's coming. It won't happen overnight if you're with a larger company. They'll put, sorry, they put the hiring freeze on, the, the, then you'll get the notice. Then you'll go through a, uh, a, a, an exercise to high grade your employees. And what they typically do is look at the ratings of the employee over the past one, two, three years. The reason why they do that is that HR is always going to be watching what they do. 
they don't want to let go of um, high performers and uh, keep the, the lower ones unless they're being consistent about that. Because it's the inconsistency in laying off is what causes companies to to find themselves in trouble. So they tend to walk in a very consistent way. And that typically is we're going to keep our best performers. And even though we may lose jobs, we'll try to keep the best performers and put them in the jobs that are available and re and retool uh, them and repurpose them. Uh, the, the only other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, we've been through this quite a lot in the industry. And so there's, uh, you know, there's probably those that are, let's say, uh, 50 to 55, um, where they're all thinking about an, an, an early retirement or those that are 55 to, to 65 that have thought, I'll just pick the right time for retirement, then this is when their hands start to come up. And you start seeing uh, quite a number of people who say, I'm tapping out and, and I leave the industry. And that's, uh, that just makes room for those individuals that are staying and, and typically, if you've kept your skills up, you will be competitive in different roles in the company. That's a good, that brings up a good question. So a lot of the people that I have worked with or see come through um, my different classes and things like that, they are over 55 and they're looking to either get back into the industry or to stay in the industry. Um, what, during a time right now, what kind of advice could you give them when there's, a lack of jobs and they need to keep their skills up to stay relevant as well. Um, first I'd say, be sure you double check your, your bank accounts to see if you could retire. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful life, but if, if you can't, or you want to stay in for a variety of reasons, then, you know, you've developed a lot of great skills uh, over the past 20, 30 years. And those skills likely are great value to, to companies still. Um, Companies try not to age discriminate because uh, obviously that doesn't bode well in the legal pl playground. But I, but you know, you need to just be conscious of the fact that when people are hiring, uh, they're tending to look for younger professionals. Um, that's just the facts. I can say that now that I'm retired. If I couldn't, if I were still working, um, and so it, it makes it that much more difficult. On the other hand, um, a venture capitalist fund who's trying to, to, to take assets that have come up for sale, the ones we talked about earlier, which really is quite popular, um, to be honest. Um, those companies are looking for people who are in their 50s or 40s or 50s. Somebody who's got a lot, lot of maturity, a lot of experience, who can come in and quickly keep a company afloat and on the rails and moving the right direction. So, again, the larger companies, uh, unless there's a specific need like a specific technical requirement like an LNG licensing expert who's is in their 50s uh, that they, they may still go after that person because they just lost the person they had um, but typically generically speaking I would say that uh, the, the older you are the harder it is to get back into a larger company but the smaller ones need that experience today they need it tomorrow and the next day they can't taking young people who they're still trying to groom and, and train and bring them up. So there's still opportunities out there. Great. So um, for somebody who's looking to make that switch, where do they start in finding these different companies? I mean, just through the news or just networking uh, around? Yeah. So 
uh, go, go to LinkedIn, uh, brush up your profile, make sure that you are, uh, you're, you're visible in the way you want to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, also, start to work your network. Uh, if you're in your 50s, you've got a network. You know people. You've been around. And uh, it may not be easy. It, it, it isn't actually always easy. But it's, it's imperative that you reach out to the individuals you know best, whether you work with them in, in civic opportunities, church opportunities, if you worked with them, they're a, fo- a former employer uh, that you know, uh, a colleague that you went to school with, you've kept up over the years, uh, a roommate, some, somebody like that. These are the individuals you want to start to reach out to. And when you reach out to them, be sure you are prepared to give them your best um, your, your best offering. And that means your resume is up to speed. It's been reviewed by people who care about you looking good, uh, meaning they're, you know, they, they catch the misspelled words, they catch the little small things and help you write an actionable re- resume. And then when you present yourself, present yourself in that way. Don't, uh, don't call up a friend and say, um, I'm thinking I'm getting laid off or I haven't been able to find a job for two years and you think you could help me write a resume. That's not where you want to start, obviously. Uh, you want to start already being ready to present yourself as a package deal. This is the value that I add. This is the skills that I've acquired. And this is what I accomplished in the years when I worked in the oil and gas space. And then present that to somebody. And somebody will hear that and go, I need that. I need that right now. Even though we're in a downturn, even though we're losing money, I still need that skill right now in my company. Great. That's great advice. So you talked a little bit about like an LMG specialist. So what other uh, different specialties do you think even in like ConocoPhillips would be needed right now? The industry has completely revolutionized itself by uh, shale uh, production and that all came through technology. And so anyone who has a technology bent or bias or skill or talent, uh, and that includes technology that deals with big, big data, that includes technology that build, deals with automation. Um, any type of technology that can improve the efficiency of any company by taking your skill set and applying it to a process and reducing the cost to do that process, that's a skill that's worth the money because you're going to go into a company like that, change, you can automate an accounting process. If you know how to do that, that's a great skill that people want in their company. Um, if you can extract crude in a different way through a different type of fracking, then that's a skill set that people are going to want. And those are highly technical roles. Mm-hmm. And so you know if you have those skills. But even if you are exceptional at taking a spreadsheet and analyzing it quickly through uh, your own uh, skills and can prove that to somebody, people want that. The big data and, and, and automation is really, really important right now in the energy space. And it's being employed all over the place. And they need more people who know how to use that technology. Um, and so that's why they keep the doors open for them almost always. But if you're, if you're a, a production accountant uh, for the state of Texas, and that's what you've done your whole life, um, it's a little bit trickier, to be honest with you. Great. That's good advice. So let's, let's talk about that. So if you are like a production accountant, how would you, given your experience, you know, lots of experience and watching people come in and out of your company, 
how have you seen people pivot into other industries in a successful way? So if you're a production accountant or if, even if you're an engineer, I've met lots of engineers that I've worked with who just find that they don't really love engineering. How have you seen different talent pivot out of oil and gas in a successful way to start other careers? Um, so that's pretty easy. I would say that it's uh, much easier for finance, HR, um, planning professional, uh, a legal professional than it is uh, geoscience or ge geotech jobs. It's harder to move into a, a different field unless you want to be a teacher, a, a, you know, a, an educator, which there are positions that open up there all the time. Um, if you are in finance, I've had many of my friends leave to go work for Apple, for Amazon, uh, at ConocoPhillips. They've gone to work for other companies, uh, to Microsoft. I remember back uh, when I was a little bit younger than I am now, Compaq, if you remember the name of that company, yeah. um, that they used to call it the, uh, the, the company, the ex-cons, ex-Conoco employees, because they, the they hired so many people. Good name. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ex-cons um, and they had a big group and a big network over there that kept bringing our people over. Why? Because their skills are translatable. If you're an accountant, if you're a finance professional, if you are an HR professional, if you are a planning professional, um, if you're an IT professional, your skills are translatable. Absolutely they are. And, and I suspect that the broader market is going to improve much faster than the oil and gas uh, space. And I think that's the case because I think crude is likely to stay low for a longer period of time. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that that's very likely at this point. And so there will be other industries um, that will pick up a lot faster. And so for those who want to, to make that jump, um, don't be too afraid. It happens all the time. So yeah, there was a question that came in about, um, I mean, you've lived in Houston, you've lived between Houston and, well, pretty much Houston and London, a lot of your career. So you kind of know the impact that oil and gas has on this city. What do you think this means for Houston overall, for other industries and um, kind of the ripple effect that, that it's going to have? You know, I, I can only look back to the last time that we were in a situation like this where we had a large supply overhang and demand was cut quite dramatically. Uh, Houston survived very well, very well, a lot better than they did in the in the uh, in the early 80s um, and late and late 80s. There it did not it did not survive well because they hadn't diversified themselves. And there's a lot of import businesses here in Houston that we didn't have before. And so while Houston is definitely impacted by the oil and gas business, it doesn't live and die by it. And I think that you'll find that there will be other opportunities. And again, because technology is something that translates into other business models pretty easily, and that's the growing place within the oil and gas industry, I think there's other ways to utilize your skills, even in the city of Houston. If you look at 2008, if you looked at the growth in 2008 in the city of Houston, and that was after a big uh, uh, mortgage boot uh, mm -hmm. uh, bust. Um, yeah, when that happened, when, yeah, the bubble happened. So that after that bust, you found that there was a slowdown in the Houston market, but there weren't a lot of net decreases in, in jobs. 
And then, of course, shale picked up right after that. And the state of Texas um, is the second highest producer of crude oil behind, um, behind the Saudis. In fact, they were more than uh, the Russians. So Texas is a booming place when it comes to oil and gas, no question about it. But it also has been able to diversify in a way that no, nobody thought that it could. So I'm, I'm a Houstonian, always have been. And I'm bullish on this city, and I think that I will be for years to come. Great. Um, so another question coming in: uh, Why are so? Why do companies list a position and then um, they send out an email and say we've gone to freezing because of what's going on right now with the coronavirus, and then they relist the position again? Does that make sense? Do you have any idea it, about yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not speaking for. My prior company, I'm not speaking for any company when I say this. No, just in general. Um, but, yeah. but I can say that the, it's a very common practice because they have to post externally if they're going to bring in external pe- or other people into jobs. And so you'll find that a good portion of the jobs that are posted externally already are filled by a preferred candidate internally. Uh-huh. Um, so you see these jobs posted for just technicalities. They have to go through the process. And I'm not an HR expert but i suspect if you had one on your on your on your podcast you'd find that there there are really strict guidelines they have to go through for eoc and making sure that they are being equally um or they're giving equal opportunities to everybody and not just the employees inside the company now that said now that said you know let's say for example if i had somebody i knew i wanted to hire and i had to post it so i'll go to hr and they post it and I get a flood of resumes in, and I'm kind of iffy on my internal candidate. Uh, I've done it a number of times where I've chosen the external candidate because their strain skills just far outweighed anybody in, internally. And that happens all the time, especially if your skills are, are such that they are quite competitive in the industry. So you're saying if they list it and then they say we're not hiring and then they list it again, it probably just has to do with the fact that the department itself is trying to determine if they can hire for this person and then trying to determine as well if they're going to place that internal candidate or if they're going to take externally, right? Right. So the, the, they're posting it and they put it internal. Now, sometimes you post it, you put it internal, you don't get any jobs. And then all of a sudden the uh, price of crew drops to 20 and you get 50 people applying and you got to repost it externally again, the same job. So you posted it, you went through an internal process, didn't find anybody who was suitable. Then all of a sudden the price drops. Everyone thinks, uh-oh, I may lose my job. I better go after whatever jobs I can find. They, get, they come back in and say, okay, I do want to apply, but they've already closed the posting. So they got to reopen the, the posting again, and it gets sent externally. And then those internal candidates, again, come into play that, that weren't before. Yeah. I think that's probably the scenario that you're referring to. Yeah, that's great advice. I think a lot of times job seekers just see the board and they just believe whatever the job board's saying, right? And there's just so much happening in the company that they are not aware of. That's really great. Yeah. Okay, I think we're about out of time. Thank you for sticking with us. If you have questions, put them over in the side. I have a couple that I wanted to ask that were sent in ahead of time. Um, Let me just look through these to see if we answered any of them. Oh, uh, what about in general, what time of year does hiring happen? Like when the, when the economy is going well, because you, you've been in finance um, and you've seen it from a global perspective, is there a certain time of year that they're more likely to say, hey, let's go ahead and hire more talent? 
Um, we look at the seasonality of employment, and there's really not uh, one particular season over another where you get more hiring. Obviously, when you're working in the field, um, that's not the same because if you're working in the field or at a refinery, you're going to work around your turnaround times. You're going to be big hiring times. You're uh, once you come out of uh, a certain phase of, of development, then you'll hire around that time as well. But if you're talking about a staff role within a company, generally there's not a seasonal time. The only time you you might see something is after the budgets are approved, and the the, the budgets are almost always approved. For those who have a calendar year of January 1 to December 31st, mm-hmm. usually those approved in October. So you, you see a big bump in October because everyone knows I've got the budget to hire that person. And what happens, you start interviewing into November, and then all of a sudden it slows down because everyone goes on holiday. And then you find somebody who wants to hire for you for the, at the beginning of the year. So I have seen bumps in, in October, and that drops dramatically in November, December, and then January picks up again as, as people then have their list made. So I would say if there was ever a time, it would be probably that October timeframe, January timeframe, and then of course, as you go into summer when a lot of the, the work begins in areas where mm-hmm. otherwise it was too, too wet to work, and, and that would be uh, in, your, in your, your early summers as well. Great. So it's not, it doesn't follow a fiscal year of any kind or anything like that. Yeah. No, no, no. I, the, the only other thing that happens in a normal environment is you get a lot of moves around school year time. Mm-hmm. And so when you create moves and the oil and gas industry does move people often, then you can create openings as well. And, and therein lies opportunities if there's not internal candidates. So sometimes you'll get it in that the March, April timeframe as well. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the bumps. That's great. Okay. Also, okay. So this came from Valdrique. He asks, uh, please ask him what geographic area he believes will show signs of recovery first. When the COVID-19 and the price fight between Saudi and Russia are over, would the U.S. shale respond faster than the conventional areas? Okay. So that's a really good question um, that he asks. Um, I assume it's a he. I'll make that presumption. So the, the, if you look at companies in general, you've got to look at their cost of supply for all of their assets. And what I mean by that is how long, how much does it cost? What price of crude oil do you need to get a 10% return on your investment? And, uh, and then, of course, how quickly do you get that investment? And so the lower cost of supply production, whether it's conventional or unconventional, those are two very different animals, as you can appreciate. Conventional is very short-term, or sorry, unconventional is very short-term uh, in nature and a long tail, and the conventional is uh, more, a little longer term and, and then sort of a longer tail, uh, but doesn't fall as fast. And so if, you've already, if you're already producing conventional oil and it's a very low cost of production, say $12, $15, $20, you're probably going to continue to pump money into those areas. And so if you're looking at areas of the country, you really have to look to the production right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the big hotspots are obviously in Texas and the Eagle Fur was a big asset that's been growing very, very fast. Uh, but again, for unconventional shale, which is the Eagle Fur, you've got to ask yourself, do I really want to sink um, that $10 million right now into that well? Um, or do I want to wait a year and get $50 crude or $60 crude because you can't go back and, re, and re- reproduce it, right? So 
you've got to decide when you want in and when you went out. And right now the prices are very low. So yeah. those convention, those conventional fields are going to probably continue to produce the, the, the unconventionals will just stop spending the capital on them. And now what part of the country, you, you know, the Bakken area, the Eagleford area, the, the Permian area, those are your big, big hotspots in those areas. Great. Um, so do you think kind of going along with this, do you think that, it'll all recover the same with the coronavirus hitting all these different countries. I mean, do you have any thoughts on whether the Saudi and the Russia, uh, things will recover there faster? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a question. For, so that's kind of that, a deep question. That's a, that's a question for Dr. Fauci. I mean, he's the one who, who <laughs> seems to have all the answers. Um, so I would probably rely on him a lot more than I would me. I'm yeah. more interested in where, where the oil and gas, uh, pickup is going to be. And I think that's around those core field areas that, that I mentioned of the Eagle for the Bakken and the Permian. Yeah. Great. All right. So how likely is the, are we to run out of room to store crude oil? That's been coming up in the news and I've gotten some questions about that. Um, because and I think you kind of mentioned this towards the beginning, we've had uh, over a surplus of crude oil so how likely are these claims that we're actually going to run out of room to store this crude oil? No, I mean, this is exactly the conversation we were having in 2008, exactly the conversation. What happens is you're storing them wherever you can store them. In caverns, you're storing, well, that's, that's gas more than anything. You've got the problem is gas comes with the crude oil, especially mm -hmm. in the unconventional. So when you, when you produce one barrel of, uh, of crude, you're also producing X amount depending on the, 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 the liquid nature of the field, but you're also producing a lot of gas that goes along with that. And you can't flare gas, you have to do something with it. So, um, you know, I, I think there is a chance that we run out of, uh, of, uh, of capacity to store and all the ships are filled as well, because that's what happens, uh -huh. they stay in ships, they just don't go to port. But I don't think that's uh, an, an issue for the near term. Uh, and I think that people are going to stop production. Um, it's, you know, again, you'll you'll keep online those production areas where you have a low cost of supply. You'll you'll try to stop spending and then even shut down. The problem is shutting down. If, if you shut in an oil field, you can ruin the reservoir, and that's a big, mm -hmm. that's a big issue because it may not come back up again. So you may continue with those that you're already producing, but you may stop spending, and that's a big deal because if you stop spending right now on the unconventional space. Uh, you would you would slow down production so much so that you'd probably be able to catch up with regards to storage. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I don't think we're going to get down to crude oil at zero uh, for free or negative. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, yeah. the problem is it's a commodity that can't come back, right? So the moment yeah. you the moment you you produce it, um, you either store it or you sell it and you sell it at $20, you'll ne never be able to sell it at 50 or 70, which it was just a few, few months ago. Yeah. Okay. So we are out of time. We're going to close up here. So anybody, if you have any more questions, go ahead and put them in the comments, but I wanted to, to end just with some, and this is, like I said, we know that you're not going to have all the answers, but just some fun predictions here of, what do you think will happen in the future of oil and gas? And one of the questions that came from Eduardo is, do you think at all, and I know you're currently retired, but that like telecommuting, telecommuting, for instance, will become more of a normal for contractors and employees? Or do you think that um, any of these other uh, 
current energy sources like nuclear, for instance, might um, get kind of a bang after a, a slow turn for oil and gas? Um, so alternative fuels, and, and I'll include nuclear in that, um, the, the, they become very, very popular when the price of oil and gas is exceptionally high. That's when other alternatives become a lot more interesting to pull um, because now the, the cost of, of oil and gas is so high that the alternative cost in another energy source is, is, uh, is going to win the day. The, the problem is when it's very, very low, you're not going to see people switching because you've got cheap oil. When you have cheap oil, you have cheap energy, you have cheap lights, you have cheap gas, you have cheap oil, you know, a diesel. All these things are very, very cheap. No, no, no source is going to compete with that when it's that cheap. Um, so I don't think you're going to get that per se. Um, and what was the first part of the question? So the other question he asked was, uh, and this, he asked, do you think that the industry will pick up telecommuting or some uh, yeah. technologies? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that telecommuting, no, no, I think it will pick up and it'll pick up for a while and uh, everyone will will love it, um, but the, the problem is, as human beings, we're 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 prone to uh, want to be together over time. It's a connection that we 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 like to make. But but I'll tell you what, uh, I had employees that worked for me in New York when I moved back. When I was in New York and I moved back uh, to Houston, I had employees in New York, and we worked very very well together. And uh, she even started work from home. And it worked out great. So I think that there are going to be more jobs that can look a little more exciting now that we're all doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I just don't know which ones those are. That's I, I, hard to predict. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. Um, any other words of advice that you have for people who are out there looking for a job? Maybe we're looking for a job before oil and gas and now they see this and they're really uh, needing some direction. Um. Yeah, I think oil and gas is going to be slow for a while, but I'd say hold the course. I mean, oil and gas has been around for 150 years. It's not going anywhere. It's um, it's going to continue to be a part of the energy source, which we all need. And even our beautiful Teslas get their energy um, from from gas for the most part. And so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if, if if you're without a job, you know, obviously it's imperative to go find a job and, and that may or may not be in the industry given the, 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 the lack of jobs. But for those that have a job or those that are in the industry and they're, they're worried about it, um, if, you, if you've got the stomach and courage, stay with it. It's going to be around a very, very long time. And, and I would say that the alternative cost of our energy is, um, is uh, much too high right now. So oil and gas will be a winner in the long term. It's just unfortunate that it's just, it ebbs and flows and it has the cycles and it always will. So if you don't like that, then, um, you know, the pharma industry, I think is probably doing pretty well right now. So. Great. Great advice. Okay, great. Well, that's, um, we're at four o'clock. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Sid also thank you to those of you at home. We are going to be taking this and producing it into an audio format where you can hear it. Um, and it will be all together with no lags. So thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for your questions. And thank you to Sid. Thanks, Lori. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this week's Camacho Careers interview. 
If you found this helpful, please click subscribe and consider joining the Facebook Camacho Career page to follow along with our community and share your feedback or suggestions with us.